Tuesday, January the 26th, and welcome back to Goodfellows, a Hoover Institution broadcast examining social, economic, political, and geopolitical concerns in this time of pandemic. I'm Bill Whalen. I'm a research fellow here at the Hoover Institution, as well as the Virginia Hobbs Carpenter Fellow in Journalism. I'll be your moderator today. Now, if this is your first time watching Goodfellows, what you're about to see is a conversation in which three Hoover Institution senior fellows, or Goodfellows as we jokingly refer to them, offer their unique insights into what may lie ahead in these uncertain times. Let's meet the good fellows, beginning with John Cochran. John's an economist, and he's the Hoover Institution's Rosemary and Jack Anderson Senior Fellow. Hello, John. Hi, everybody. Second good fellow joining us from his wilderness outpost is Neil Ferguson. Neil's a renowned historian and author, and he is the Hoover Institution's Milbank Family Senior Fellow. Hello, Neil. Good to be back, Bill. Looking forward to this very much. And our third good fellow, last but certainly not least, is Lieutenant General H.R. McMaster. He is the Hoover Institution's Fouad Michelle Ajami Senior Fellow, and he is the author of the New York Times bestseller, Battlegrounds, A Fight to Defend the Free World. Hello, H.R. Hey, Bill. Great to be with everybody. So, uh, gentlemen, we're doing things a little different today. We have a guest joining us today. Uh, we want to talk about COVID, and we thought, with no offense to you three learned gentlemen who are all PhDs, we thought we would bring an MD into the conversation to talk about the pandemic, what we know about lockdowns, vaccine distributions, and the most sensible strategy moving forward with this and other future strains uh, coming our way. So joining us today is Dr. Jay Bhattacharya. Dr. Bhattacharya, or Dr. J, as he's known to his friends, is a professor of medicine at Stanford University, a research associate at the National Bureau of Economics Research, and a senior fellow at the Stanford Institute for Economic Policy Research and Stanford's Freeman Spogley Institute. Dr. J, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me, Bill. Let's get one thing out of the way, especially since we have a renowned Philadelphia native H.R. McMaster on the show. When we say Dr. J is joining us, his eyes lit up because why? He thought basketball, dunking. How many lame Julius Irving jokes do you have to put up with? On Are you kidding basis? me? I, I would, I, you, you would rather have him on the show than me. I, I completely understand. <laughs> hey, and the the Sixers look pretty good this this they season. Do. I'm telling you. I mean, Philadelphia sports is making a comeback with the Sixers and Flyers uh, in this season. So, okay. Ferguson and Cochran are smiling. Thank you for God's sakes. When are you get serious? So let's get serious now. <laughs> uh, the news out of Sacramento yesterday, uh, Dr. Bhattacharya, California is now adopting an age-based system uh, to vaccinate its residents, uh, shift away from the state's initial strategy of weighing job-based risk. Uh, if the current pace of local COVID-19 vaccinations continues, it'll likely take until about June to inoculate all of California's 65 and older residents. Uh, who knows what happens to those who don't fall in that age group? Um, there has been just consistently bad news coming out of California when it comes to vaccinations. Uh, throughout January, California has lagged behind every major state in the nation in percentage of available shots administered. It's lagged behind the national average. At one point in January, California surpassed Alabama as a state in the nation with the lowest percentage of shots administered. By definition, that makes California the worst state in the nation at this game. So question for you, Dr. J, since all five of us work at a very imaginative university in a very intelligent state that at all times thinks that it is imaginative and futuristic, how did California get this wrong? Well, I think just from the very beginning, the strategy was wrong. I think uh, if, if you, so I've been looking at, at, these, at projection models of, of what, uh, what the right strategy to use is. There's one theory that says we should vaccinate people who spread the disease are more likely to spread the disease. Another theory says we should vaccinate people who are at high risk of mortality from giving the disease. I fall very strongly in the camp of let's vaccinate people who are at high risk of mortality. Uh, the, 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 um, uh, the, the, the trying to guess who's going to spread the disease doesn't make a ton of sense. 
Um, and, and in fact, Florida's followed the strategy. Let's vac- we know from lots and lots of data that people who are, are older are, are the highest risk. Every eight years or so of age doubles your COVID mortality risk if you should get infected. Um, so I think just from the beginning, not prioritizing old, older people was an enormous mistake. Uh, you know, and, and I think uh, we sort of started to start, have seen this um, th- th- uh, play out in California in, in very strange ways. Um, a lot of the, a lot of the, there's also the, a lot of bureaucratic snafus that are that have happened in California that have happened in lots of other places, but it, in, in 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 spades in California. Even the rollout to healthcare workers was much slower than in many other states. Um, it's just it's been a it's been I think a disaster all the way across in California for vaccine distribution. Okay. Can I, can I push you on that? Because <clears throat> I've heard a lot of the opposite view. And so, um, you know, one, one of the opposite views, uh, Alex Tabarrok's been pretty, very good on this. Um, your, uh, that strategy assumes it's just going to go and there's nothing you just do to, you can do to stop it. Um, you know, a lot of the point of the vaccine is to stop the spread of the disease. You're fighting exponential growth. And so the total number of people who die is much lower if you can, uh, stop the exponential growth of the disease as opposed to just give up and, and try to protect people. In addition, um, you know, there's two technologies for protecting people. One is give them the vaccine and the other is don't put them in contact with the virus. So old folks are particularly able to stay home, uh, you know, maybe vaccinate their caregivers uh, to make sure the caregivers don't give it to them. Uh, and, but, uh, and that also does nothing for the economy, which is tanking. Um, you know, vac- vaccinating is a license to go out and, and work. <laughs> Um, and, uh, you know, people who are in a, you know, to take the worst example, you know, take somebody who's, uh, has dementia sitting in a nursing home doing nothing. They're not going to spread it to anyone else and we could stop them from getting it, uh, by other means. Why don't we use, the, this is the central conceptual question. Are we to use this vaccine to stop the exponential growth of a disease, get R under one, or are we to use the vaccine to protect people who, according to mortality or whatever, uh, protection we want to give, uh, and uh, and just uh, take for granted that the that the disease is going to spread and there's nothing to do about it. Yeah, I mean, I think the evidence on whether it's possible to stop the spread of the disease, the, the question is like, what to what end? Right? Is it is it, is it are we aiming at zero COVID or are we aiming at at minimum mortality until the disease becomes endemic? Um, I think I think that that zero COVID is 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 an impossibility. It's it's far too widespread in the Europe, the Europe and the Americas for that to, to be a reasonable strategy. So then the question is, we're not aiming. We're aiming at getting the reproduction rate under one. Yes, but it's already under one, right, in California, because the number of cases is declining. I, the issue, the issue, so the issue, it there issue, so we don't blow up again. <laughs> well, I mean, I think is is like if you look at at what uh, uh, if you look if you compare states with very very different policies with similar uh, similar regional sort of uh, you know where they are and the in, you know, geography wise. Um, it, it doesn't look like there's a real viable strategy to stop this disease from spreading. It, it seems to spread. It has a season. It's it's COVID season, you know, winter time um, in, in in Southern California. In the Midwest, it was winter season in the late fall. Um, I mean, I think uh, I think this idea that we can somehow uh, stage manage the disease, uh, it, it slow the spread, get it under one, and keep it there. I mean, permanently. I think the the real the, the real the real question to me isn't. Um, uh, sort of like, how can we slow the spread of the disease? I think that that's effectively, just, it's not possible. Like just places with very, very different policies regarding the lockdowns, uh, Florida and California, for instance, have almost exactly the same number of cumulative cases to date and almost exactly the same age-adjusted mortality to date. 
Um, the, the key question to me is how do you protect the vulnerable? Um, and we know that, that the, the, the disease mortality risk doubles with eight, every eight years of age, every eight years of age. And, and, um, uh, so I, I think, I think that, that, that's the, the, the right strategy is to use the vaccine to protect the vulnerable. Uh, just to give you some sense of this, um, if you look at the infection fatality rate that comes out of these seroprevalence studies, now hundred of them, hundred plus of them, um, it's the, the survival rate is 95% for people over 70 and 99.95%, 99.95% for people under 70. Um, it's, it's just a much, much more deadly disease. And if you do the, the math, uh, like there's some folks who've done this at, at USC that I was just looking at their, their projections. Um, you end up saving a lot more lives if you protect the vulnerable with the same number of vaccine doses. I mean, the key scarce resource now is the, the doses, right? Of the vaccine. Um, you just end up, end up saving more lives. I think that's, that's, that's the long run thing. The question of like, what do you do with the, the under 70 and the economy? That's a really good question. But I think that, that, that there it's a question of trade offs. Um, we, you're basically saying, let's wait until, uh, until let's, let's wait until everyone's vaccinated to open up. You're going to have, end up having, I think, more economic damage and more lives lost than if you, than if you protect the vulnerable with the vaccine. Now, Florida says they're going to vaccinate every person in nursing homes by the end of January. That's where 40% of the deaths have happened. I mean, that's, that was definitely possible if we just chosen to do that in California. Um, the, for people under 70 opening up, I mean, I think at that point, if you're comparing a 0.05% mortality risk, it's not giving up the way you characterize it, John. I, I, I guess I'd push back on that. I, I, I think the question is, um, we, we, it's not possible to, to think of a, a world where COVID doesn't exist anymore. Right, that's just not. It's not possible, right? That's just. No, but it's possible. Which is the next question I want to get to is is the long run on this. But it is very possible to think of a world in which the um, reproduction rate was more carefully managed, allowing us to have tests, allowing us to have vaccines. Uh, I'm I'm still not convinced that uh, <clears throat> that uh, get, you know instead of lockdowns, for example, uh, that getting the reproduction rate under one, you know, the total cum. Any of the models say the total cumulative number of people who get it or, or who die is very strongly affected by by efforts to get it. And, it. and it doesn't have to be the government deciding. You know, if you allow people to have or buy vaccines, then, you know, Stanford could buy vaccines and open up again. A bar could buy vaccines and open up again. Airlines could uh, buy vaccines and open up again. You know, just who needs to open up again is is uh, not something that the state of California is going to figure out. And Again, old people can be protected by other means. Don't let them get the disease a little more carefully. I mean, I, I, of course, I've been advocating for that from the beginning. To, 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 I mean, I think that was the primary thing that we kind of needed to do was was protect old people. And the pushback I got early was that it's impossible to do it. Um, with the vaccine, we actually have a perfect technology to, to protect to protect old people. I think the, I think the, the question of can we open, I, I guess the question is one of fear. Like, so what is, what is, uh, your perception of, uh, of a young person, like if, uh, you know, what's a young person's perception of their, their death risk? Should they get COVID? I mean, I saw, a, I saw a statistic that people, so the young people think that their mortality risk is 17% from dying from COVID. When it, in fact, it's under, you know, 0.05% should they get COVID? I, I think this fear of getting COVID, uh, is, is, uh, is I think what drives that question. Like, why are the businesses not open? Cause they're scared. Right, they're scared to, to scared to open it. In, in effect, there's a large fraction of long run people with long run consequences of COVID. So John, we don't actually don't know the, how how large that fraction is, right? I just think though it's really hard 
except for those that are most vulnerable and who do not frequently interact with other generations or you know younger people. Certainly, that's the that's the population to target. I think, uh, and Jay, I don't know if you've seen any studies on this, but I think a lot of young people are you know are 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 really reticent about you know about getting out, getting back to you know so-called normal life because of who else they're afraid of infecting because it, because these are younger people who interact with older people. These are Younger people who interact with expectant mothers who, who are really don't really know what the effects could be if they were to contract the virus or very young infants and so forth. So I think that, you know, there is an element of this to, which that you, it's, it's very hard to, to, to put aside one particular population, except for, I would say, those that we already know are most vulnerable. And, and Jay, you're saying over 70 and, and especially those that are, that are in, in these places where 40% of the deaths occurred. And so I, I guess the, the question is also one of logistics, though, too, right? We do want to get the most number of doses out as quickly as we can. I think there is a dynamic at work here is that when you, when you, when you target a very discrete element of the population, it's harder logistically, right, to get you know the vaccines just to that discrete element of the population. If you do go to, hey, everybody over seventy, let's go right now, come on, you know, and then and you get it out more more broadly, uh, then then I think that kind of that that is as an easier logistical problem to solve. And and I just wondered, you know, for Jay, you know, what are your thoughts on that? I mean, in terms of the interaction across age groups, right, as as well as you know, what is the what is the best policy that protects the most vulnerable, but also gets it done the fastest? So th this, I completely agree with the sentiment of this. The speed at which we vaccinate is incredibly important. And we failed at many, many, as California certainly failed at the worst. Um, uh, and, and, and I think... Um, HR, I think the issue of this interact, this, this interactions between generations is really, really important. Like I, I, I've only seen my mom once. My 80 year old mom lives in LA once in this whole epidemic because I don't want to infect. She is actually at very high risk. Um, should she get this thing? Um, and I cannot wait until she get the vaccine. So then, then I'll, I don't, I won't, I just, I don't care if I get the disease. I'm 52. My mortality risk is, you know, point two. I'll take the risk to go visit my mom. Right. Um, uh, so I, I think I think that's really, really important. Protecting the vulnerable will free the, the less vulnerable and the people who, who care for them, because that really is the fear of the back of our heads. I don't want to kill my mom with this with the, with this disease. And so I'm going to not I'm going to interact with her less. And we have multi-generational households all through California, identifying people who live in those households, older people, prioritizing them. And I completely agree with you also about the logistics. You send the vaccine to nursing homes. How hard is that? You get a list of vaccine. I mean, actually, you can tell me how hard that is, HR. Um, no, it's not, it's not that hard. I it's say, it's right? very hard. I heard a report. It took a one man hour per shot to get a vaccine into nursing homes because you got to find the people and go over there and fill out the forms and so forth. Yeah, I mean, we could we could reduce some of the, the, the that kind of burden, right? I, I, I would imagine. But once you go into, into now, you want a priority list about demonstrate you live in a multi generational. I mean, you could. Yeah, well, I mean, I think I, I think uh, I think we start with the nursing homes. That's where forty percent of the deaths are. Could I? I'd like to ask a, a genuine question. Uh, so we got we got a snafu of logistics to deliver it. We also have a supply problem. So, um, why is supply still a problem? This is the greatest industrial economy of all time. Uh, you know, we've known this thing since January 21st of 2020. Um, why are we not producing vaccine like crazy? Why is the AstraZeneca vaccine still not allowed in the U.S. if we apparently have a, a pandemic going on? Uh, what stops someone? This was invented over a weekend. Uh, as an economist, I always look to competition. Why didn't someone invent a slightly different one over the next weekend and, and flood the market with this stuff? 
I mean, I think uh, so. There's there's lots that go into that, uh, John. So for, so first, it's it was um, this is this was a technology that was I think originally going to be used to to uh, like treat cancer actually, and uh, you know it, so it was sort of repurposed for this that it, that it would work in this setting was actually in some ways it was a gamble. Like if if you'd asked me in April, in fact, I think someone did ask me in April, would we have a vaccine in a year? I would have said that's that's not. There's no chance. Um, I mean, normally it takes 10 years to develop this. This new technology, this MRA vaccine technology is actually, the fact that it works is, is absolutely a game changer. It's, 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 a, it's, a, it's a, in principle, we could use this as a tool to like develop, you know, another vaccine over the weekend in principle. The problem is testing it, right? So that you have to test it in populations, see if it works. That takes a long time. That, that, that technology still is a, is a long, you know, you run a phase three randomized trial, it's going to be very, 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 very difficult. Um, the manufacturing technology, it's, it's, I mean, it's, it's a, an, an mRNA strand built inside this lipid thing in, in a, a sort of medical grade thing. It's actually kind of complicated. I mean, I don't know the full details of it, but yeah. to ramp that up does, does take some time. Operation Warp Speed, um, actually pushed that forward by essentially making the bet that the vaccine would work. And so we got started on that sometime in like July or August, I think. Yeah. And hey, AJ, if I could just interject, I think this is something that, that was extremely positive because yeah. there were many people in the government, many people in the medical community who were saying, don't do it. It's too risky. Don't buy. Essentially, you're buying the doses up front. And the government said, we'll absorb the cost if it fails. Right. So I, I think it's important to look at the scale of this. I mean, it's it's large scale right across our country relative to smaller countries like Israel, for example, who's going to be able to get you know, cer certainly more, uh, you know, more doses per capita out uh, faster. Uh, and and the second thing is, it, it is the complexity of the manufacturing. And I, I just, you know, there was a big story behind this in terms of research and development over the years, mainly about concerned with with biological agents uh, the, and the need for, you know, for rapid prototyping against biological uh, agents. And so, you know, the requirement, the military requirement for R&D for a long time for the applied research and, and the basic research was to develop uh, the ability to, to prototype a vaccine in 24 hours and to be able to produce it at scale. And we had in mind, in part, a military unit or a city that was struck with it, you know, with a, you know, with, with a military grade biological agent. So this R&D is paying it's paying off. And, and this is, of course, not just government programs, this government and private government funding for private research and so forth. But it is I mean, it's tough to do it at scale. And we would really be in, in a difficult position. If if the if the U.S. government had not made the, the you know made the risky decision up front to say okay we're just going to buy it now and start manufacturing yeah, and I was, I was on a radio show actually I think sometime in, in August or September where they were asking me about this like look why, how come the government's paying uh, Pfizer for manufacturing all these things uh, the, these doses we don't there, there's nothing vaccine I said and that's exactly right it, it was a big gamble but it's a gamble that paid off. And we should be really happy. At I wonder if I could uh, break my silence, if it's possible, to get John to stop firing his carefully prepped questions at Jay. I oh, I'm making it up as I go along. I hate to, uh, I hate to butt in, but uh, th there is something we should we should uh, quickly address, uh, uh, and that is that this is a moving target. Uh, that the virus uh, has been mutating uh, since the get go, uh, but the big news that certainly 
uh, affected my outlook of the last few weeks has been uh, the new variant discovered in the UK that is, uh, it turns out, more infectious and it seems also somewhat more lethal than earlier variants. And even more alarming, new variants in South Africa and Brazil look like they might uh, have ways around uh, vaccination or might somewhat impair the uh, effectiveness of antibodies in people with who've been infected with previous strains. Now, I, I wanted to ask you a question, Jay, which I kind of ask myself. Uh, going back to your Great Barrington Declaration in October and how the world looked back then, uh, I think I was pretty much with you in your argument that lockdowns were an unnecessarily blunt instrument to cope with uh, this peculiar uh, ageist uh, disease, but it seems like events since then have in some ways legitimized lockdowns. If you think about the UK case, it was with a lockdown that case numbers went absolutely soaring upwards. Uh, and that was the new variant, uh, largely though not entirely. So I got I want to ask you the kind of uh, the hard question. Do, do you think you were on the wrong side of that whole debate back in October and underestimated what the virus could uh, could do to surprise us? And would you write it differently today? Uh, Neil, that's that's a fantastic question. Thanks you for thank you for the opportunity to address it. So the great the, the great Barrington Declaration was something that I wrote with uh, with Sinetra Gupta at Oxford and and uh, Martin Kuldorf at Harvard uh, in October. The, uh, the argument was that the lockdown harms are absolutely enormous for people under under uh, under 70 um, whereas the the, uh, the the disease is is quite deadly for people over 70 and so for people over 70 we should do a, a policy focused protection you know sort of do do everything we possibly can to to uh, reduce the amount the probability that they get the disease whereas for people under 70, you know uh, the lockdowns are so deadly and different and and terrible that we basically should uh, should uh, do as much as we can to carefully open up right so open schools in the united states for instance uh uh, uh, uh let businesses run uh you know obviously with no one's going to like come in without any protections but that's but but don't have closure orders things like that um so that was the big Bay Barrington declaration proposal uh, to, to address your question, Neil, so the the the, the pushback we got was, was twofold. Like one was that uh, that focus protection is impossible. That there's no possible way we could have have, have have actually protected. And actually, I was kind of shocked by that. Like I've been in public health for a very long time, and um, I have always thought that public health people, if there's one thing that they're really good at, is like thinking of imaginative ways to try to protect vulnerable people. And just just sort of throw their hands up and give up absolutely shocked me. Uh, I still think I was on the right side of that. I don't. I think that they that they that, that the public health uh, authorities should should have been much more imaginative at the time in trying to think of ways to protect the vulnerable. Uh, there was some. Uh, there's some. So, so just uh, I'll give you one example. Like uh, an, a thing that occurred to me like as an obvious policy we could have used in the U.S. We have um, these essential workers. Say you're older and you're essential. Well, we have workplace disability laws that give you accommodation if you're if you're if you're if you're uh, you know if, if you have a disability. Treat vulnerability to COVID as your if you're as a as a disability, and so you have to have some some workplace accommodation that you know it's like if you're a teacher, for instance, you teach 
but you, you can have the Zoom class if you're over 64 or something, 63 or something, or, or you know, you're 60 or something, and you have some chronic conditions in person if you're, you know, 25 or something, right? So I think that those kinds of ideas, I think I, I don't understand to this day why they weren't, why, why people thought it was impossible to completely protect. I mean, of course, complete protection would have been impossible. Um, better protection of nursing homes, I think, is possible. Like there, you can see this in age gradients of who actually got the disease in places that did better. Places that did better, the age gradient is much is you know, more young people got the disease than young, older old people. Um, on places that did worse, like California, old and young people get the disease at roughly the same rate. Um, so I think I think in that sense, I think we got it right. Uh, in the sense of like can't our lockdowns deadly, I still also think we got it right. They are deadly. We we have basically robbed a generation of children in the United States from a, a full year of schooling with consequences that will last us, you know, like how do you teach a six-year-old six to read over Zoom? You, the answer is you don't. So you get illiteracy that, that will last for, I mean, we just have, and the inequality of it is absolutely enormous. Like just, it's it's unimaginable. Uh, like probably the, the worst policy as far as promoting inequality that I've ever seen. Um, so I think in that, in that sense, we still got it right. The question of was the vaccine going to come as a way to get us out of this. That's, I think, is the heart of your question, Neil, right? I, I, and, and of course, I, as I've confessed, I, I didn't think that the vaccine was going to come in April. I was somewhat more hopeful in October, but of course, we couldn't know if, the, if it was going to work in the randomized trials. Neither could the, the, the people who signed the John Stone Memorandum opposing us. Um, so I think uh, there that there's an uncertainty there. And the question then is, again, what do you do with the vaccine once you have it, right? So for the lockdowners, what they're arguing for is use the vaccine to vaccinate everybody, right? Uh, before you open up, before before you have that any semblance of return to normal. Um, I, I think there the vaccine essentially is is I mean I, it doesn't get you out of it. It just it, it 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 essentially like it doesn't actually help the lockdown strategy a ton. Whereas for the 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 the, the strategy we advocated, the Great Barrington strategy, it I mean the vaccine is a game changer. Now the argument that you can't protect the vulnerable is gone. So I don't know. I don't, I'm not sure I would change a lot other than to, to increase now in retrospect. Now that I know the vaccine worked just, just to, to, to like push a little bit more about what would have happened if the vaccine were to, were to work. But there's also a counterfactual question, if I may. What if uh, back in October, uh, everyone had agreed with you? If they had, uh, I, that was just at the moment that, that there were big increases in case numbers uh, in Europe and in the Northeast, particularly of the United States. In the counterfactual, uh, where the Great Barrington Declaration is universally adopted by governments, uh, then I think today we would be looking at a much higher death toll. Um, I, I, so I don't agree with that, Neil. I think the question is the, the possibility of focus protection. Because I, I mean, the, the premise under your, your, your thought is that the, the lockdowns actually protected the vulnerable. I don't think that's true. Like if you look at what as actual that the actual practice of the lockdowns, California is a fantastic example. Okay, so in California, who have the lockdowns actually protected? Well, they protected the there's there's the, they protected the rich, right? They protected whereas uh, uh, Hispanics, people living in poorer neighborhoods, have all been essentially been exposed despite the lockdown. I think the death rate would have been very, very similar if we had not done focus protections. So that, let me just address your counterfactual because I think that's really the right one. Um, the, 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 if we had ad adopted the Great Barrington Declaration, that's a call for focus protection. And we had launched this like Manhattan project of how to like protect the vulnerable. 
we would have actually had much lower death rates, I think. Can I, I want to jump in and try to get you guys to clarify what you mean by lockdown, because my impression of this is, is there's a lot of um, perfection getting in the way of the good. We, we know this spreads uh, in isolated sort of super spreader fashion. So lockdown tends to mean economic lockdown, businesses must shut down. But um, we also know this doesn't spread in an auto body paint shop. Uh, <laughs> closing down outdoor dining that isn't behind a, a, a uh, that, that's really outdoor, not behind a plastic wrap is completely pointless. Closing down parks is completely pointless. Um, so at, at least let's, I think the fact we need to face is economic lockdown is kind of, this doesn't spread in business, this spreads in parties. And what happened in the fall had a lot to do with Thanksgiving and, and people hanging around in each so other's John, houses. So economic lock, let me just, economic lockdown isn't, isn't really, it, it doesn't, doesn't have to do with the way this spreads. And we have a lot of technologies we're not using. Testing. The CDC uh, stopped testing for two, two months. Then it forbade Stanford for doing its own testing. The FDA still doesn't allow us to use tests at home without a doctor's prescription. There's a lot of technology we can use to stop the actual spread that's in parties. You know, Thanksgiving, suppose we had been allowed home, $2 home paper strip tests. Not perfect, but $2 home paper strip tests. That would have done it. We would not have had the big social spread at Thanksgiving. So focusing on economic lockdowns where, where you force businesses to shut down willy-nilly seems to me like an artificial distinction. We need to be more clear about what you mean by lockdown here. So, John, I completely agree with that. I mean, 100% agree with that. So I think that that we... That Neil the, doesn't yet. What? <laughs> just, well, <laughs> no, I mean, I, there's I just no stuff to be like, clear, my position is that of devil's advocate. Just just to uh, refresh... Oh, no, you, I don't think... But none of this is personal. I mean, you guys, we were trying to... Regular listeners will know that we were very close to your position uh, last year uh, and often discussed the unwisdom of of lockdowns and the unintended costs that they were imposing socially so uh my my position is more that i look back on that time and wonder if i was a little optimistic about how well it would have worked and particularly given not just the new strains but that big lift off in case numbers that that not many people expected to happen in europe which was driven actually by colleges uh, going back as much, uh, if not more, than by Thanksgiving. John, thanks by Thanksgiving it had already happened, and that yeah, just made yeah. it a so, bit worse. But we'll actually, to Jay, what all happened in the fall outbreak? So you guys, can I, can I, let me, let me, let me. To, so to there's like I've been writing down. You guys have like been firing these things at me, I, and actually, this is really <laughs> fun. I have to say because I, I, I've been wanting this kind of debate, and I've been shocked at the the. Uh, uh, how, how difficult it's been to get the other side to debate. And so devil's advocate is great, actually. Yeah, um, we basically agreed with the Great Barrington Declaration, but I'm kind of asking myself, no, I think I these are the right questions. Was I too sanguine about it? And can I add one last data point? When we talk about California, we're basically talking about Los Angeles because 41% of deaths were in LA County, 55% of cases and 48% of deaths were Latino. And I think one of the, the things that I, I, I completely agree with you about is that we've come up with solutions to the problem of the pandemic that have worked very well for the rich. We did not have a credible so solution for Los Angeles Latinos. And I'd love to know how you would have actually protected the elderly people in that community from their, the younger generations of their families. Cause I actually, when I look back on Great Barrington, my, my, the thing I missed was that that was the social group. It was really hard to protect given the ways in which they, they live. 
cheek by jowl in multi-generational family homes. I've been calling this trickle-down epidemiology. That's what the lockdowns are. Um, I, I think... Uh, I think uh, so. Let me let me let me. Uh, so I have a list of th- you guys have been firing at me. So let me just start with the variants. Um, I, so first, I think the variants uh, you should expect when you're reaching closer to herd immunity that variants will compete with each other that are marginally more fit and will take over. Right. So a lot of the modeling around this, I think, uh, of as like especially like this the the, the disease spread. I, I think it's exactly what you'd expect as you get closer and closer to larger and larger fractions of the population already being been infected. Right. There's compete. There, 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 there's the few variants competing for a few, the, the relatively few people still left, you know, to infect. And so you will you will see some variant take over. That's just that's just like the B one one seven in the UK. I think that's there's some aspect of that. I think the evidence on whether it's more deadly is terrible. I don't think it's more deadly. I don't, I don't, at least I haven't seen any evidence that convinces me that it's more deadly. Um, and, and the evidence about the, the vaccine protecting, I think the evidence is that it, if, if it doesn't completely protect, it seems like it's still neutralizing. And, but even if it's not entirely neutralizing, it's at least partially neutralizing. Uh, you have at least partial protection. That's pretty good. Right. And, you know, I think over time we'll, we'll, we'll learn more. Uh, you know, obviously this is still early days and that's in the sense of like, um, what variants come? What what the properties of the variants are? But are there the, any? Can you make projections projections at this point, Jay? When you think uh, based on supply and our ability to administer, you know, uh, across you know across these you know the, the different priority groups, you know, when do you think you're we're going to see a change? You know, in our ability to go back to something closer to normal. I just want to point out, you know, the, you know we have. I think we're vaccinating about 24 million people in the United States now, which is by far the largest number in the world. I think China's like 15 million. Um, you know, Israel, which is the is the best at at getting you know getting at this problem from a per capita perspective, I think is about what I think they're cl- almost close to 50 percent uh, vaccinated, uh, but that's 4.1 million. So just to give you an idea, right? They're 49 percent, 4.1 million. We've done you know almost 24 million, I think now, and we're about seven, a little bit over seven percent of our population. So you know, we we have to consider the scale, right? It's like when it's like when it's, it's like when Nazi Germany decided to invade, you know, the Soviet Union. They looked at the map but forgot to look at the scale, right? You have to understand. I think, you know, this is a large endeavor for a large country like ours. Yeah, I, I, I agree with that. I mean, I think uh, I. Okay, this is like soothsaying. So I'm gonna I'm gonna I'm gonna get in trouble for this, but I, but I think it depends on the strategy we take. Like, if you are asking how long it would take to vaccinate the elderly population, I think. By April is feasible. I mean, it's like, you know, because I, I mean, I, you, and frankly, you'd know better than me HR about this. But like, I think that 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 uh, identifying the elderly people who live in nursing homes, that's relatively easy. Identifying people who live in in uh, multi-generational homes, that's a little harder. But actually, there there are federal programs that can do this. There's a there's a federal agency called ASPR that uh, that every time there's a natural disaster, it like, gets a list, I, I know because I've worked on this, a list of like el- every elderly person living within the area that, that has oxygen tank needs or whatever. And so the public health officials know who to go help in those. I mean, we could use those kinds of federal programs to try to identify older people all throughout the US, I think by April. And then the question is, do we wait until everyone's vaccinated um, uh, I don't think I don't think there's a reason to do that at that point. And John, we could use your idea about the te- the testing. Get the cheap tests available so that businesses just have them. I get two dollar. I mean, that is those 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 tests. Those antigen tests are really really inexpensive. The only reason we don't have them all everywhere is the FDA hasn't let us have them everywhere. That's um, right. Get out of the way is always the first answer. Yeah. Hey, could I ask you a question? Uh, it seems to me that the goal here is to reach herd immunity. 
And I saw you quoted in the Washington Post the other day suggesting um, that there maybe is not a definition for herd immunity. So if the end is to reach this magical number, what is the magical number? Is it X number of Americans? Can in the scientific community agree on what the goal is here? No, Nobody knows that number. And it's different in different places. I'll tell you what it is technically. Technically is uh, it's a situation where uh, every additional person, it's an equilibrium situation where one additional person getting infected infects one or fewer other additional people. Mm-hmm. That's it. That's that's what herd immunity means. And nobody knows what that number is. Well, because it depends on behavior as much as biology. And, and people and are more de- careful, and, and, the herd immunity depends, is lower. And it depends not only on the vaccine, I think, right? But it depends on who's already had it. And yeah, I mean, I saw, I'll tell you, because they already had it. I think about 140 million people have had infections in the U.S. to date, 140 million. And the way, the way I get to that is uh, if you look at the number of people who have died to date uh, and divide by the infection, whatever your guess for the infection fatality rate is, let's say it's I, my, my best guess for the U.S. is like 0.35. Um, you get to about 140 million people infected to so date. What do we know about how long that confers immunity and how long the vaccine confers immunity? Uh, so the, we actually the, the the natural immunity is pretty well established now. So there's pr- papers in Nature, Cell, a whole bunch of other places that it's not just antibody mediated immunity, but also T cells and B cell, memory B cells, a whole panoply of of of, uh, of immune mechanisms that confer very long lasting immunity in other and other diseases. For instance, other for other coronaviruses could last years, and when you're and when you're uh, reinfected. Um, even if after a long time, your body still remembers to some extent that the reinfection tends to be much less severe than the original infection. The, the long run of this disease is an, an endemic coronavirus in the population, right? With where it's, you'll get it as a kid, it'll be mild and you, and you will, and you'll keep getting it, you know, every, four, every few years and, uh, it, you'll just be a cold. Jay, can I ask a slightly different question? Because, uh, we're enjoying this masterclass in epidemiology, but I, I want to ask a, a question really about the sociology of your field. One of the puzzling things about 2020 was how quickly around about March, uh, a consensus formed that we had to do drastic lockdowns, including things like closing parks that even at the time seemed slightly mad. And you were one of a relative minority of uh, experts who who were arguing against that and often being uh, uh, publicly attacked for doing so. I wonder, looking back on it, why that was. My impression was that, particularly uh, in the Western democracies, there was a kind of disastrous failure in January and February and into March to learn from what was happening in Taiwan and South Korea, followed by panic when it became clear that the virus was very widely seeded uh, in the Western world. And then a relatively small amount of research, e.g. by Imperial College London, where there's a man named Neil Ferguson who isn't me, <laughs> caused a huge policy uh, shift, 180 degree turn. And I just wonder why that happened. And why were you so, out, I guess, outmaneuvered by proponents of very drastic non-pharmaceutical measures that that cratered our economy in ways that John's profession are still trying to get their heads around. Why did that happen? Why, why um, did they get to proclaim themselves ec- economic experts? Uh, I mean, John, if you were, be- you were, leave behavior out of their models. You no, know, I think that's that's just it. Like we we economists fell down on the job, John. I think like we, we were they, screaming loudly the whole time. Uh, we're, <laughs> all, maybe maybe you, John, but there were just as a general rule, we were cowed. 
right? We basically shouldn't, we should, we said, uh, the, the, there was this moral challenge to us that, uh, you're, you're favoring money over lives. And that ended it for economists. Uh, for the most part, economists, I think it played a very poor role. Uh, you accepted John, of course. Um, but I think it played a very poor role in this, in this, uh, cause we actually should have been screaming loudly about the cost of the, the lockdowns, the harms, all those, all those things that have not actually helped disease, slow disease spread. We knew in, in March that we shouldn't have closed the schools, actually. I mean, even, you know, uh, we we knew because the the children were really, weren't really affected. Uh, the, the the study that uh, that came out of Iceland about the about the the, the the reduced probability of disease spread from child child to adult that came out in early April. Um, I, I, if I remember right, at least or at least uh, sort of early versions of it. I, I mean, we should have been screaming loudly about the harms of the lockdown. That should have been in our. Mo- so we had this panic that where people focused on the purported benefits of the lockdown. And you weren't allowed to say anything about the cost. So you, we adopted a policy thinking that we were only benefits. Um, and, and, and this, and this like thinking this, there was this also this sort of like, uh, emphasis on the uncertainty, right? So the, the, this, this precautionary principle idea that, uh, there's this huge tail risk of what this disease could be like. Um, in fact, John Enides wrote a sort of very famous stat news piece where he said it could be, uh, somewhere between f- you know, 40 million deaths in the U.S. or 10,000 deaths in the U.S. We just don't have, we don't have any idea. And, and people in the panic focused on, oh my God, it could be a very large number of deaths. And the, and the Imperial College model sort of solidified that. I think if you go back and write the history of this, that, that, that will play an enormous role in, in, in people's thinking, um, in, in, in those days. They, they just sort of, and if you look back on the, the, the actual model itself, it was a terrible, it, it was terrible. Like it was based on, um, guesses about the infection fatality rate, the, the R number, a whole bunch of things that they had absolutely no business making guesses over, or at least providing us with enormous range of uncertainty around it. Um, well, the, the R number did not include people's behavior. It didn't include it, people it who didn't. say, oh, You're shit, right. I might get sick and, and then do something about it. I got to defend us economists. The economists were loudly screaming about it. Even within the administration, the economists were loudly screaming about it, which is why, I mean, the current thing is, oh, Trump didn't do enough. But in fact, it's because he was listening to his economists who said this stuff is not a good idea. The lockdowns came uh, from a governor level. And perhaps from a populace who, who, I think, I think that we needed to have a, a seat at the table that was more, more effective, right? The, fa- yeah, the face can I, of, can I just, can I just point out the, uh, the irony or the, or the paradox that economists are complaining about other people getting in their business instead of the other way around for a change. <laughs> and, then, and then also, and also to say that, you know, it's unfortunate this interaction that we saw, right? I mean, we saw this interaction where people go, they immediately went like ad hominem and, you know, how can you not be for a complete shutdown? You must not care about humanity. And, and of course, these are the people who are unaffected, uh, you know, by, by, by the shutdowns because their jobs didn't depend on interacting with, with other people. You know, th- there was this, uh, this big disparity, I think. If there's a disparity in class, it was the, you know, those who were, who were the, the loudest in condemnation. Uh, but who actually didn't take a big hit in their paychecks, you know, and, and if they were in New York, they moved out to the Hamptons, you know, and, and, and to loudly decry the fact that the, that, uh, the New York City wasn't completely shut down. So, you know, I, I, I think, uh, you know, there, there's an element of this that, that then generated an interaction on the other, on the other side. People said, well, you know, I'm not going to wear a mask because, you know, that's infringing on my civil liberties. I mean, it was, it was like two ir- irrational, equally irrational positions. That seemed to push everybody toward those extremes instead of, of course, doing what might be sensible to do. But leaving aside the, the politics of it, um, 
the economic, the intellectual side, the academic side, I'm actually heartened by how much economists and epidemiologists started talking to each other, created a round, a round of behavioral SIR models that include both that I think are uh, a great product of this. Um, and who can give us better scientific advice if anyone wants to listen to scientific advice next time around. I mean, I've been, I've been following uh, uh, Tom Phillips's work for two decades, and he's, he's been arguing for those for a long time. Um, actually, I wrote one myself and for the H1N1, like, what is it, 10, 12 years ago. But I mean, the, I don't know. I think uh, we were very ineffective, John. I just, I guess I can't excuse us. Um, and uh, I, I, I guess there's also some element of like personal, um, like I, my personal experience was, uh, arguing with econometricians about standard errors instead of talking about how lockdown harms. Um, I, I think there's this like nerdiness in us that, that, that sort of got in our way of being effective. Um, uh, I don't know. I mean, I just, there's, there's, there's some element of that too. Can I, can I move us on to, uh, I want to talk about the long run uh, where your medical knowledge will help uh, a lot, or at least there's things I know I don't know. Um, you mentioned that this will become chronic uh, now, one question is whether it becomes uh, chronic in, in the way that we, we all get it when we're young and repeatedly, like the common cold, or does it become chronic, but uh, we get an, a uh, we get um, vaccines? Uh, perhaps uh, is the miracle of mRNA vaccines, will they become like flu vaccines where they can adjust them, target them, and we trust mRNA so much we don't have to go through three phases of clinical trials in the usual 10 years uh, before we can do it. Uh, on the other hand, this is a disease that mutates. It's a disease that has human hosts and natural hosts. That's usually a uh, that's usually a sign of something that will will you know have waves and then it'll go back to its hosts and then it'll get reseeded when people's immunity is gone. Um, but what's your opinion on on the long run of this? I mean, I I, I don't know the answer to the vaccine yet because the issue is it's not like the flu in that sense. Like the flu mutates in ways where the previous vaccine really doesn't protect you very much. There's not much cross protection. I think uh, if I had to hazard a guess about that, John, is that the, the, the vaccine we currently have will, will provide substantial protection, uh, it, even against a mutated form, mutated forms of this. It's again, because it's not like the flu. Isn't the, I'm sorry, the technology sounds like it allows you every January 21st, take a weekend off, sequence what's out there, and you got a new vaccine the next Monday. I mean, in, in principle, yeah, you could do that. I mean, people, I don't think people will be comfortable with that just, just like lickety split it, it'll take some some doing to I'm get in the long run future yeah i mean i think i think like with the flu it was it was it took a while to get to the point where we didn't need to run a, a randomized trial every every, uh, every season um so i think uh, I, I think there's some element of of, of uh, getting comfortable with this technology i do think this technology this mra technology is absolutely transformative because it's not now i mean like yeah, people are talking about using it for almost every infectious disease in principle um, you know, maybe it's the end of infectious disease. Who knows? I mean, I, like, if we're, we're going to dream. Um, well, that's the dream I was asking you to speculate about. Yeah. yeah. So I just, I think, um, I think that's, it's, 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 it's going to be a little while before people are comfortable with that, is my guess. Um, but I, I, but as far as like this disease, this particular COVID disease, I, I don't, I think that the, the vaccine, it's, uh, there's this particular target, this, this spike protein that's specific to this, that's where the antibodies producing very, very effective, even against most of the variants. In fact, every variant I think that I've seen, um, uh, if, if, if I don't know exactly the number, per, the percent effective, I think that that uh, unlike the flu, we won't have to reformulate it every year. I think we'll just basically have, if anything, minor tweaks. And I don't. Do we need to have it every year? We don't. I don't even know the answer to that because the vaccine seems to induce some sort of T cell response, some sort of like widespread immune response that has the hallmarks of being somewhat long lasting. 
So uh, we'll we'll see. I guess is the answer to that. We just it's, the vaccine's been around for two months, so it's hard to answer definitively. But I'm very hopeful at this point. Neil, you look very contemplative. I'm contemplating the future and trying to imagine uh, a bunch of different futures. I'm sure everybody listening has asked at least once in the last 24 hours, oh, when can we get back to normal? And I suppose the uh, the answer to that is, well, it may not be quite that normal, the normal that you remember from 2019, because we may approach each flu season with greater trepidation uh, in future. A lot depends, I think, on what happens in the less developed world. If we get vaccination right in the northern hemisphere, but not in the southern hemisphere, does that become a place where the mutation game just keeps on producing more challenging uh, variants? Um, is excess mortality going to be higher uh, each winter, at least for the next few years will masks be in our pockets uh uh when uh you know this time next year that that's i guess my question for you jay do you do you see a way back to full normal or are we going to find ourselves maybe living a bit more like east asians with uh, masks at the ready each winter and no more hugging and handshaking and all that kissing stuff which i rather object to bowing or at least uh, confining ourselves to elbow bumps how, how big a change do you think this is going to be and and for how long i mean i think uh you're you're uh you're broadening it out to to a world's perspective is a very very good good uh, uh good thought right because i think so for instance i just saw in new zealand they're not planning to open borders for two years Right. Uh, and it's going to take some time to get them vaccinated because they're not really, I mean, it's just, it's just, it just will. I think that, I, I, and actually, uh, as far as the question of like what, what will happen regarding other infectious diseases, the flu is a good example of this. There's no flu or very, very little flu in the Northern Hemisphere this year. And there was none in the Southern Hemisphere this year. It, it seems like the, probably the, the most parsimonious explanation is shutting down international travel, stop the spread of the flu from the North to the South and South to the North. Um, at least that's the one I'm I'm, I'm currently uh, in favor of right now. Not, but, not the masks and distancing. Th there's now fourteen, like so, fourteen randomized trials on masks and the spread of the flu, and there's they all find zero. Uh, I just I just don't I just it's really unlikely that it would stop the flu, but not COVID. I mean, it just that seems like that's not the most personalized explanation. Um, I mean, I could be wrong, but because I, I think this is one of these things where we, it's, it's a genuine medical mystery. Why did the flu disappear? Um, I think that I think that the the uh, shifts in the, the, the like the restrictions in in interactions of populations will have a big role in, in the future you're talking about Neil. so if it's the case that these these restrictions um uh continue uh we we, we, we probably will see lower infectious disease we we won't really will we'll, people will still be scared of them and won't go back to won't go back to normal um that's one possible future i, I mean actually i look at look at florida florida is a good example of a place where i think they are actually have opened up Disneyland is uh, Disney World is open. Um, I think people shake hands in Florida, which is hard to believe. I think um, I, so. I, I, it's 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 almost like a foreign country we're talking about here, right? Uh, in Sweden, I, there's there are these like uh, my friends send me these um, these like videos of people shopping in Sweden, and they're like <gasps> they went into the shop and they're not wearing a mask in the shop. I mean, it's like it's it's one of these things where like it it really does feel like a foreign land. Uh, Jay, remind me to send you some Carl Hyacin books if you want to read about Florida, but we are we're getting short on time here. So why don't we go around the horn? Let's ask each of the good fellows for some closing thoughts just on maybe what you've learned today, but also if we're going to accept that future strains, future pandemics are way the future, just what we do differently. Uh, HR, why don't you start? 
Well, I'll just say I had the great fortune of getting to know Jay during the pandemic. And I think that what our, our viewers got today is a is an example that we can apply across all professions, even when debating or discussing, you know, the, the you know, the most you know emotion evoking issues, you know, like this pandemic. Jay has been sort of a, an example of professionalism and and respect. And and uh, Jay, I just want to say I really appreciate your commitment to having respectful, meaningful discussions about the challenges we're facing. And uh, maybe even our politicians uh, could follow your example at some point. Okay, John, you've been very shy and retiring on this broadcast. What your final thoughts? <laughs> I'm Mr. Kumbaya. He's always trying to get people to get along better. <laughs> it's true. How, do you, how can you not love Jay? I mean, really? <laughs> no, you. <laughs> <laughs> even you, John, even your heart should be warmed. By a uh, conversation with Jay. I'm sure you're from Philadelphia, by the way. <laughs> so I, I'm, Go ahead, always, John. I'm always worried. I mean, my view is that this one is the fire drill. Um, most pandemics killed way more people than this one did. Uh, I'm, and our society needed a fire drill. Um, will we pay attention or will, you know, like all those stocks of masks and stuff that we forgot to maintain and all those great pandemic plans that nobody knew where they were when the time comes, you know, maybe there's something hopeful in this vision that it, it becomes somewhat endemic that people keep paying attention to it. And then there's a future where, uh, yeah, uh, masks are still in our pockets. Uh, we pay attention to indoor ventilation so that the indoor can be as safe as the outdoor. Uh, we pay attention to general communicable respiratory disease spread and, and bring that down where uh, mRNA is is accepted as the, the thing, you know, it, it can be developed much more quickly. Uh, where uh, we have tests, where I, I hope we learn the importance of letting people know what's inside their bodies that I think are the, the idea of tests as being a way of stopping a disease spread, not just diagnosing an individual patient needs to get through the thick head of the FDA. But, um, can we have, can we look forward to a world where we, we need bureaucratic competence? Uh, can our, can our leaders say the lesson of this is we need a much more effective, uh, public bureaucracy and, and keep the preparations in place, uh, so that when, the next one comes out of the next lab in China, or we also need a better international surveillance system, but so that the world is perpetually ready and also perpetually much more flexible. That's that's my hopeful one, and um, I hope for it. <laughs> Neil? I think we should take away from this discussion the importance of acknowledging what we don't know. And what is great about Jay is that at each stage of our conversation, he's acknowledged that there is a lot that we don't know. Uh, and and decision-making under uncertainty isn't something that's confined to pandemics. Yet in my new book that comes out in May, I, I predict that the next disaster will not be a pandemic. It will be something else that we've completely forgotten about or at least stop thinking about. So yeah, let's let's try to draw a broader conclusion from this uh, harrowing experience. Uh, and that should be that we need to think better about how to take decisions under uncertainty when there actually aren't sufficient data to have very high confidence. Uh, so yeah, that that's why I, I think if we make decisions that way, we'll cope better with the next disaster than we coped with this one, I still have a sense that this is the sort of darkness before the dawn and that things are going to improve much more rapidly in the US than most people currently expect. And one can already see that in even in the Californian data that we began by talking about. So I think we go from a very gloomy winter to a rather a buoyant spring and summer. Uh, and, and that actually, if 
Chinese behavior in Wuhan is anything to go by, and it's a year since Wuhan was under complete lockdown, and Wuhan today uh, is just as uh, as Jay was describing Sweden, a place that's uh, largely back to normal. I think we're going to get there, and we'll look back and, and say, was it all a dream? Was it all a nightmare? Well, it was a nightmare, and the nightmare was made much worse by bad decision-making under uncertainty. Right, but Neil, Too you complicated like plans. But Neil, as you like to remind us, stuff happens. Stuff happens. Events, dear boy, events. And I'm sure I'm sure we'll be blindsided by something later in 2021 that nobody put in their predictions. Well, Dr. Bhattacharya, since you were kind enough to um, share an hour with us and engage in the intellectual joust, I hope you enjoyed this today. Uh, we're going to give you the courtesy of having the last word. I just want to thank the three of you. I just had, a, I mean, it's just a delightful time. I, I, I wish this had been the norm all through the whole epidemic. This, this kind of open exchange. I think one of the, while science has done very well in, in many ways with the vaccine, the, 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 the harm to open scientific discourse, censorship in science, all these kind of things that have happened, I think are things that we need, going to need to work to repair. And this is exactly the way to repair it, to have these kinds of conversations between people who just, I mean, we're trying to learn from one another. Okay, and that is a wrap. That's it for this episode of Goodfellows. We'll be back soon with a new episode, a new conversation. On behalf of Hoover's Goodfellows, Neil Ferguson, H.R. McMaster, John Cochran, and our special guest today, Dr. Jay Bhattacharya, we wish you and yours the very best. Stay safe. Stay healthy. We'll do our best here at the Hoover Institution to help you stay informed. We'll see you next week. <laughs>